Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. Second Chronicles 8 is where we're at. Uh, as a summary, chapters 1 and 2, Solomon preps to build the temple. Chapters 3 to 5, he's building and God reveals an approval of the whole endeavor. Chapter 6, Solomon prays. Chapter 7, God answers. And then chapter 8, we start with the rest of Chronicles here. So the one good thing that the era of kings brought was the temple. The work they did for God was the highlight of the king's era of kings. Solomon is the, you know, the, the handoff from David. And between David and Solomon, you really get the best possible start to this age of covenant. Every era of history, God's given humans the best possible start. Adam and Eve walking and talking in the garden. Um, Moses at handing it off to Joshua for the judges era. You have uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob for the patriarch era. Um, and then we, as we start this last era before Messiah comes, you get David handing it off to Solomon. You get the best that this world has to offer for kings. As as we have all the way along, and then you get to chapter 8, and now we start to see that even Solomon was letting go of some things he probably shouldn't have. And those things set the seeds up for the rest of this era of kings, which is pretty much a downhill slide to Babylon. And that's the journey we're on. few speed bumps in there with Josiah and Hezekiah, but overall that's the narrative. So verse 1, And it came to pass at the end of 20 years, when Solomon had built the house of the Lord and his own house, that the cities which Hiram had given to Solomon, Solomon built them, and he settled the children of Israel there. And Solomon went to Hamath Zobah and seized it. And he built Tadmor in the wilderness and all the, the storage cities which he built in Hamath. He built Upper Beth Horon, Lower Beth Horon, fortified cities with walls, gates, and bars. And also Baalath. Note that that's named after Baal. And all the storage cities that Solomon had. And all the chariot cities and the cities of the Calvary. And all that Solomon desired to build in Jerusalem and in Lebanon and all the land of his dominion. So lots of clues here that things aren't right in this, in this initial passage. And the writers write this. Again, the writers are trying to set up people to come from Babylon and rebuild the temple and start over and to try again. So I think they're given a lot of these cues. First, it took 20 years. Some people would say, wait a second, it only took seven years to build the temple. So why does it say 20 here? Note that it adds Solomon built his own house. He does not have the same workforce, which we're going to see. So it takes 13 years to build his house, which was smaller than the temple. But the temple went up quicker because he had a much larger workforce to build it. Um, we also see that the palace is the beginning of a list of things that Solomon does and that Solomon took initiative on a number of projects that God didn't tell him to do. He got the mandate from God and from David to build the temple. He did not get the mandate for any of these other things. However... Notice at the end of 6, it says, of his dominion. So we're not talking about God's dominion now. We're talking about a human's dominion. Things Solomon had charge over, and he's going to take care of those things, and he's going to do things with them. He settled the children of Israel. In that sense, as king, he becomes a steward, and he's going to take care of this domain that God's handed to him. And the way he takes care of it, the way he takes responsibility for this as a king, is he starts to initiate his own plans. This is interesting. Sometimes God tells us what to do directly, do this thing. And sometimes God says, here's your responsibilities in life, 
carry out those responsibilities with your own judgment and your own judgment calls. So some of the things Solomon does here are fine. Walls, gates, and bars are all defensive. Um, they've all been, ar archaeologically now, we're hitting a lot of stuff. That In 75, they dug up Hazor. In 1980s, they dug up Yadin. In 1993, they dug up Megiddo. These are all these cities that we're talking about in this passage. All of those cities in the archaeology have Solomonic era gates. So these gates were massive. They're, it's why they're getting highlighted here. Walls, gates, and bars is that these gates were enormous. The grandeur of Solomon's Megiddo is, quote, clearly evident in the archaeological finds in Megiddo um, Tell. Large palaces, fine, smooth ashlar masonry in elaborate decorative stonework. Um, and we see that in biblical archaeology review. These things were beautiful. They're works of art. And you'd come into these cities and you know this was a city that Solomon had. Notice that we have some cities from Hiram. Solomon had gifted cities to Hiram, but it appears in verse 2 that those cities were then given back to Solomon. So it could be that if Solomon didn't pay his debt to these workers, these were like collateral cities. That, and, and with nomadic peoples, if I give you a city and then you choose to move out and somebody else inhabits it, the walls are still good. So it was common in this era as nations took over or moved that cities would be traded like poker chips because you could move a certain group out, they could go nomadic with their sheep, and then another nation could come in and use the cities. And in verse C, 2, we see a little clue of those cities getting moved back and forth. When Solomon took over a city, he built it up. So he invested in it, he invested in the things. Um, frankly, I think this is where the Romans got their leadership style from. When Romans would take over a city, they would build a coliseum, they'd build walls, they would build roads. And so a lot of folks living in the cities would, were happy when Rome took over because Rome would invest in the cities that it took over. Other people fought Rome, but it's why Rome reigned for 800 years. In general, they brought in a season of peace, just like Solomon does. The chariot cities, however, are our first clue tonight that Solomon's not on track. Deuteronomy 17, you might want to just open to there and keep a thumb in there and keep flipping back and forth between this. Deuteronomy 17, the second half of the chapter, is instructions to the kings as to what they should and shouldn't do. And if you look at the end of Deuteronomy 17, they were not supposed to gather horses. So virtually the entire list of what Israeli kings should not do, what we get in chapter 8 of Chronicles is that Solomon did every single one of them. He started to immediately do the things he shouldn't be doing. So, uh, and, and if you understand that, as I think the writers of Chronicles felt their audience would understand this, that he's breaking the rules here, we should also be aware of those rules. So Solomon did, and I'm going to quote, all that Solomon desired. So we can take a thing from this. Top tier, God commands it, like Sabbath, tithe, fellowship, feasts, calling, gathering as a church. Middle tier, stewardship. God's given you responsibilities. He expects you to be good with them. So household, family, work life, your crafts, whatever defenses you build around your house, these are taking care of your domain. And then you got low tier, things that are against God's command, but we do them because they're our desires. And those are the things that are horses, rudeness, selfishness, sin, the gathering of things from Egypt. Like this is all stuff he shouldn't be doing. And yet he's doing it. So I think we see like um, that the writer is putting things in, in that order. He builds the temple, that's top tier. He takes care of the cities, builds bards, gates, and defenses, and is a good king. That's middle tier. He's taking care of his dominion. And then right here in, in verse 7, we're moving into low tier. He's doing things that he desires, but they're actually against what he's supposed to be doing. Verse 7 then. 
we get a, this mix here. Um, all the people who were left were the Hittites. They liked to fight a lot. The Amorites, they're Italian romantics. The Perizzites, they make for good candy dispensers. The Hivites and the Jebusites. And if you remember, the Jebusites were people that used to live in Jerusalem. So they were not of Israel. That is, their descendants who were left in the land after them, whom the children of Israel did not destroy. From these Solomon raised a forced labor, as it is to this day. But Solomon did not make the children of Israel servants for his work. Some were men of war, captains of his officers, captains of his chariots and his cavalry, and others were chiefs of the officials of King Solomon, 250 who ruled over the people. So Solomon sets up an administrative structure. Um, it says here these people that Israel didn't destroy. The command actually wasn't to destroy people in the land. The command was to drive them out. So these are people that weren't driven out. And I want to be really clear about this. When Joshua and the judges and even up to David were, were pushing these people out of the land, they were nomadic peoples to start with. So all it meant is go herd your sheep over that away, right? To destroy them was never one of God's commands. Unless they fought Israel, Israel was supposed to fight back. And the, so far as we've seen in the Old Testament, most of the judges stuck to that plan and that policy. If they weren't being oppressed, they didn't fight necessarily. Um, the ones that remained, remained under the law that Moses had given, and that was that they were willing to serve the Lord God Almighty. Any Gentile that was willing to bow before Yahweh was allowed to stay in Israel. So when it says the people that were left behind that weren't destroyed, we're probably talking about converts or people that were willing to give Yahweh the glory, or else David would have moved them along. So the idea of turning those people into slaves is actually pretty abominable. And the Chronicler just kind of records it, um, but we know that throughout the Old Testament, the Jewish people saw themselves as former slaves. All the way up to Ezra, who's one of the writers of Chronicles, Ezra 9.9 said, we are slaves. They're former slaves. And to treat existing slaves in an honorable and a good way is throughout the law. The other piece with slavery is this. Slaves were allowed to participate in Passover with the families that they served, according to the law. Slaves were meant to not have to work on Sabbath. So they were given Sabbath breaks. So suddenly when you look at Jewish slavery, I don't want to mix that up with our perspective of ancient slavery because there were laws around slavery that minimized the condition. They also had a thing called Jubilee where no matter who was enslaved, they had a chance at freedom at least once in a lifetime. And so when, if they're following those laws, these slaves at best should be temporary. Um, there was also laws in the law about slavery being redeemed. They should all have a redemption price. And if they wanted to buy their way out of slavery, they should have an opportunity to do that. So very different kind of slavery than what I think we think of slavery as Americans today. That said, there's nothing in the law that says Solomon's supposed to enslave people. Like he's really crossing a line here. Um, so if these people were in debt or had to pay off debts, that was a place where you would then work off your debt. But we would call that employment today. We wouldn't call that slavery. I want to be really specific about this because I think this is a sticking point for people. Um, this idea of loving the Lord, even in Isaiah 56, and Isaiah spoke during the era of kings. And he said, the sons of a foreigner who join themselves to the Lord to serve him and love the name of the Lord to be his servants, everyone who keeps from defiling the Sabbath holds fast my commandment. It's a very clear that everywhere throughout the Old Testament, anyone that was keeping covenant with the Lord was valued and they were to be treated like a full person. So forced labor is where the writer gives us a hint here. 
Um, Solomon appears to be going into this gray area where he's making people work for him, and he's doing it based on racial differences. So we should be, that should raise an eyebrow. In 1 Kings 10, 11, Rehoboam brags that he'll use scorpions where his dad Solomon used whips. So we should also think of this slavery like it included whips. So when you have forced labor in that situation, you wonder if Solomon's allowing them to have Sabbath, if he's allowing them to have a redemption price. Is Solomon breaking the law all over the place here? And the chronicler doesn't tell us that, but Rehoboam's comments show us to some degree Solomon was breaking some of those rules that we find in the Old Testament in Deuteronomy. Ultimately, when left to his own desires, Solomon chooses some good, he chooses some evil. And at the end of the day, the evil, I think, is what marks or defiles his, his legacy. Justification for Solomon might have been something like, well, these people don't follow Yahweh, they're not the chosen children, so only for a season I'll use them to do these projects. So, but on the other hand, or you could say I'll stick to Levitical or Deuteronomic law and I'll be more humane than other kings are with my slaves. But either way, he's justifying a thing that he shouldn't be doing. So this makes that when they become slaves to Babylon, that's kind of a just punishment too. So part of what God does with the Jewish people is he returns them to slavery for a season so they can remember what that's like. And you wonder if part of that is justice for what's going on here. When you read Jeremiah, that's clearly the argument Jeremiah is making. You have enslaved others, therefore God's going to enslave you. And God treats his own people with different expectations. So Solomon mimics the rest of the world. He gives pre precedent to his own people. Overall, in this time of peace, it's laced with the undercurrent of sin. He has peace with Hiram. He makes slaves of everybody else. So in this period, I also want to point out, Solomon gets this 20 years where he's not being attacked by anybody. In the ancient world, this is crazy. This is a season of peace that's supernatural. But here's the historical explanation of why Solomon's not getting attacked. He's got the Assyrian Empire growing in the north, but they're busy battling the Arameans. They don't have time for Israel. He's got Babylonia growing in the southeast. They're being held in check because for Babylon to attack, they got to go through Assyria to get to them. They got Egypt in the south, which at this time, Egypt's in the middle of a civil war, according to their records. So, and frankly, Egypt's dividing up into a bunch of mini-states. They don't have a large enough army to attack anybody at this season. They will in a few generations, but right now, Egypt is so weak that we get verse 11. Solomon takes an Egyptian wife, and this is unprecedented for Egyptians. Egyptians would take your young ladies to come and be wives in Egypt, but they would never send their own princesses to be a daughter somewhere else. So this is a super unique period in history where Egypt gives one of their own to another country, and that just simply doesn't happen in Egyptian history anywhere but here. And so Solomon brought the daughter of Pharaoh up from the city of David to the house he had built for her, and he said, My wealth shall not dwell in the house of David, king of Israel, because the, place, the places which the ark of the Lord has come are holy. That's an odd thing for Solomon to say. Like, he knows that she shouldn't be there. Why does he know that? Because he's written out a copy of Deuteronomy, and if you have your thumb there, he shouldn't be marrying foreign wives. A king of Israel shouldn't do that. But his justification is, well, she won't live in the same house. But that's a silly justification, and it's still breaking the law. So Solomon's a smart guy. He knows it. And I would say the danger of being a smart guy is intellectual rationales for sin. You can convince yourself it's okay, 
and you come up with excuses that justify a clear defiance of God's law. And that's not any different today. He thinks it'll make a difference if she's in a different house. Um, by the way, we should note, um, he has a few more marriages than just the Egyptian woman. He has 700 wives and 300 concubines coming from almost every nation around him. All these wives have not converted to following Yahweh. They bring their false religions with them. And Solomon gives in to his wives and makes room for them to build temples and set up statues, which send all of Solomon's son into lives of sin. So this guy has wisdom when it comes to civics and running the country. He's an absolute fool in his family life. So yet we ignore another rule of kings, not to make alliances or marriages with other nations. Deuteronomy 17, 17, you should not multiply wives for yourself, lest your heart turn away. Even the wisest, smartest dude in the world can ignore God's wisdom. And God's wisdom is simply greater than any wisdom that even the most wise in the world has gotten. So if you think wisdom will keep you from sin, Solomon proves that's not the case. Something else has to happen to keep you from sin. Also note that Solomon first ignored the things that don't have an obvious moral issue. The horses, the chariots. From the flesh, having extra chariots seems like a pretty practical idea that God has simply asked him not to do, but he makes excuses for the things that the world accepts, and now he's making excuses for things that are clearly a lot more morally questionable. If you break the easy, easy laws, it's easy for Satan to drive in a wedge and break the bigger laws. What's the problem with getting a bunch of horses and having defenses ready to go? The problem is chariots are offensive weapons. They're, they're for attacking other people. They're for threatening other people. To have international relationships based on fear, not based on respect and fair trade. And so in doing this, he ignores this. It's very practical for him to have an army as a worldly king, but it's against God's law. And we have a lot of laws like that in our lives too, which it's hard to explain to non-believers why they're important because they're not, from the world's perspective, they're not that big of a deal. And yet God's asked us to keep these things that aren't a big deal as a way to honor him. So the practicality of a marriage alliance with other, com uh, with other countries seems really easy. Well, this is a good way to make a bond with Egypt or Babylon or Assyria. But the truth is none of these marriages save Israel. None of them serve to provide the defense that the world says these marriages will provide. All they do is, is corrupt the nation. So it says the wife shall not dwell strongly implies that Solomon knew she was pagan. He knew that when he married her. Um, and Ezra and Nehemiah have set this book up in, around building the temple. So I think it's important in this case to see what Ezra and Nehemiah say about this event because they're living and writing at the exact same generation that Chronicles is getting written. So in Nehemiah 13.26, it says, Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin by doing these things? Yet among many nations, there was no king like him. He did some bad, he did some good. Who was beloved of his God and God made him king over Israel? Nevertheless, pagan women caused him to sin. Should, should we then hear of your doing all this great evil, transgressing against our God by marrying pagan women? So where Chronicles doesn't point out the sin, contemporaries did point out the sin. Nehemiah knew darn well this was wrong. All the writers of Chronicles knew this was wrong, and they're expecting that we know the law and we can recognize that too. So they spoke against it. They said it was sin. They said it was the cause of what went wrong. But in Chronicles, 
the focus is on the temple and it just skips this stuff, just like it skipped Bathsheba with David. And Chronicles, that's just not the focus of Chronicles. They're going to skip that stuff because God's forgiven that stuff. And so we get the record of it happening, but the, the effect is dramatically reduced when we read Chronicles. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't see that it's sin. Does that make sense? So we again note that this commentary is, is, is there, and we get to verse 12. Then Solomon offered burnt offerings to the Lord on the altar of the Lord, which he had built before the vestibule, according to the daily rate, offering according to the commandment of Moses. So he actually knew what the commandments of Moses were, darn well. For the Sabbaths, the new moons, the three appointed yearly feasts, the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, Feast of Weeks, the Feast of Tabernacles. According to this, he's doing all the Leviticus stuff the right way, but he's failing in the Deuteronomy stuff. He's keeping the worship of the Lord true to how the Lord wanted it for the people, but he's also making these personal mistakes. Verse 14, And according to the order of David, his father, he appointed the divisions of the priests for their service the Levites for their duties to praise and serve before the priests as a duty of each day required and the gatekeepers by their divisions at each gate. For so David, the man of God, had commanded. They did not depart from the command of the king to the priests and the Levites concerning any matter or concerning the treasuries. In other words, the personal life is going astray. The temple ordinances are kept to a T, even including the stuff that David added to it. And so Solomon, when it comes to the temple, did everything the right way. Verse 16. Now all the work of Solomon was well-ordered from the day of the foundation of the house of the Lord until it was finished. So the house of the Lord was completed. All right. I think the verse 16 is the big clue where the writers threw in their commentary. When it comes to when he started being king until he built the temple, which we know was 20 years, he was pretty good. And he made a couple mistakes that he shouldn't have done, keeping the Calvary, keeping the wife. Um, but when it came to everything, the word well-ordered there in the Hebrew is the word kun. It's the only use that we see in the Bible of this word, that he was well-ordered from the day of his foundation. In other words, these people picked out a very particular word to explain what Solomon did right. And the word means to be firm or to set up or to be established and stable. Solomon had a sound foundation in his kingship. He started off on the right, right foot. And then from is in there too. Um, the Septuagint uses the word from. It was well ordered from the day of the foundation. The Septuagint says as far as is the way they translate that word. It shows a distinction between the administration of the temple and these other stray decisions. So the work of Solomon was well ordered as far as the foundation and the foundation of the house of the Lord. As far as that, he did it right. The temple was inspired. It was done perfectly, even if Solomon's personal life wasn't. So, and then you have the phrase, until it was finished. Another clue in there that when it was finished, things weren't well ordered. And Solomon's kingship went off onto a whole other direction. So, again, we're setting this up. And I think part of Chronicles is to teach whatever kings are going to take over after Babylon, that they need to do it the right way. And they need to get rid of this idol worship. Verse 17, Then Solomon went to Ezi and Geber and Elath on the seacoast in the land of Edom. And Hiram sent him ships by the hand of his servants, the servants who knew the sea. And they went with the servants of Solomon to Ophir and acquired 450 talents of gold and from there and brought it to King Solomon. We are now talking about wealth, flat out money getting traded. This is new for Israel. They didn't, they're not seafarers by nature, and they never have been. 
So Solomon leads them into a new endeavor. He's got ports. All three of these ports face south. So they're going to India, Arabia, and Africa. And they're sailing out the south. They already had ports and shipping lanes through the Mediterranean. But this is this piece. Nobody really knows where Ophir is. That's a city mentioned in the Bible that they have not found or dug up yet. That said, just wait for it. Like, keep your eyes on archaeology because we're in a really fun era of archaeology right now. They are digging all this stuff up. So they haven't found the, the city of Ophir yet. They will, and within the Christian community, we'll be all excited. Like, they'll find coins from Solomon down in India somewhere, and they'll be like, okay, we think this is the city of Ophir. Here's coins with Semelic writing on it and all that sort of thing. I'm just waiting for that article to happen, and the rest of the world won't even notice. And it'll be like, okay, well, we've, there's one more thing in the Bible that got confirmed. So point being, Solomon's learning and gaining new skills. He's taking Israel in new directions. And this is, again, that's probably something pretty good as to what he's doing. Brings a lot of wealth in. Then we get the dedication here. Now, when the Queen of Sheba, that's in Yemen today. By the way, the archaeologists have dug this up. They've confirmed all of this. When the Queen of Sheba heard the fame of Solomon, she came to Jerusalem to test Solomon with hard questions. Having a very great retinue, how do you say that word? Retinue? All right. Camels that bore spices, gold in abundance, precious stones. And when she came to Solomon, she spoke with him about all that was in her heart. I like this story. I like this when we did it in Kings. So she's made a 1,500-mile trip across the desert with camels. And their camels are orny, orny critters, so she has a lot of patience to deal with these creatures that spit at you. Um we now have, um, they've done recent digs in, in Yemen now. They have over 4,000 inscriptions with Sheba being named as one of the four kingdoms of Yemen during this era. So absolute overwhelming evidence of her existence, of this kingdom that she was head of. We also know what they traded because when you do archaeology, you're largely digging up business records. They were, they had a, they were known for gold mines, and they were so known for their gold that when the Roman Empire rose, they sent a unit of 10,000 soldiers to go down to Yemen, conquer it, and bring the gold back to Rome. They died in the desert, and they never really had a fighting force when they arrived, and the Yemenites just destroyed all of them before they could take any gold. Two most popular spices that are grown in Sheba, I thought this was interesting, frankincense and myrrh. So the three major exports this area had was gold, frankincense, and myrrh coming out of this area of the world. She comes up to ask hard questions. So you got a model for teaching and learning in the ancient world. Same model that Jesus used it. The, the model of teaching and learning hasn't changed here then for thousands of years. If you want to learn something, you go ask questions, which puts the initiative on the student, not on the teacher. So she comes up and, and she has this... Um, Frankly, at this era, what they're digging up is that Sheba had amazing technology. That she was, and they had queens. It's clear from that. Um, they had a massive dam system in place for irrigating hundreds of acres of land through an irrigation system that they built by hand. So the works that they had done were definitely comparable to what we just got from Solomon's list. So you have two very advanced, progressive leaders of countries. Um, there's a technical learning here that she's coming up to get. And so when she comes up with these hard questions, she's trying to get things she can bring back to her country because she can see the wealth that Solomon's been acquiring. So the great uh, caravan she travels with is to show goodwill and trade. The tradition here is that a visiting king would bring 
in each gift one at a time. It could be a three-day to a week event where each camel comes lopping into the, the area and they unload it and they say, and here's a new treasure for you. And then they have drinks and they feast and then they bring in another camel and here's another gift for you. And so this was a form of trade too. The expectation was the visiting dignitary would bring all these gifts and then the king before the dignitary would leave would return a bunch of gifts from that land. Today we call that trade. And so that was kind of the, they would bring as much as they could bring and the expectation is that the, the resident king would then give back at least as much as what that person had brought. So you start to exchange things. Um, but let's not miss the idea that Solomon, the son that God's watching over and who he loves, is, is receiving the gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh from visiting dignitaries from the east. Let's just not miss that image here that Jesus fulfills. Um, Solomon then establishes a kingdom. He builds a temple. He gets gold, frankincense, and myrrh from afar, and he's asked hard questions. And you think of the life of Jesus, like these hard questions are part of what is distinguishing of all four Gospels. He was approached by all sorts of people with hard questions. Um, the difference is she comes with an open heart and she's asking in order to learn where Jesus gets asked hard questions with hard-hearted people. And so there's a little difference there. But um, the fact that Solomon and the wealth that God blesses him with actually opens the heart of Gentiles to conversation is a really cool image. Verse 2. Boy, that was just verse 1. Okay, verse 2. So Solomon answered all her questions. There was nothing so difficult for Solomon that he could not explain it to her. And when the queen of Sheba had seen the wisdom of Solomon and the house that he had built, the food at his table, the seating of his servants, the service of his waiters and their apparel, his cupbearers and their apparel, and his entry by which we went up to the house of the Lord, there was no more spirit in her. Interesting phrase. There's simply nothing lacking in the son's kingdom. This Gentile comes and visits the kingdom of Solomon, and there's just nothing that is gone or missing or lacking in this. Even the servants look like they're happy and well-pleased. And you think, how much greater is Christ when we come to his kingdom? That there's so much to be impressed by in God's kingdom. Bring all your questions to the Son, and there's nothing too difficult for the Son. You definitely have a typology of Christ going on here. Jesus looked at them in, in Mark 10, 27 and said, With men it's impossible, but not with God. With God all things are possible. And Jesus just simply had an answer for everything. Note that what she sees is what's overwhelming to her. This is a strong image of what compels a Gentile when they see the kingdom of God. They see it. They don't have to believe something. They have to witness something. So the wisdom, I just want to go through each of these. She's impressed with the wisdom. Today, I'm going to compare it to Christianity. The gospel just makes sense. And for some people, they're just impressed with it. 1 Peter 3.15, always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you for a reason, asks you hard questions, for the hope that's in you with meekness and fear. Just be ready to talk about it. It makes sense. She's impressed with the house that he had built. Well, what house has Jesus built? He built the church. So when people come to a church, the thing that Matthew says the gates of hell can't knock down Right? Solomon's gates were impressive things, and, nothing, and they were, in their day they were wonderful, but how much greater are the gates of the church? They're wonderful. They're glorious. And when people, in a spiritual sense, see the house that God has built, that's part of our witness. Then the food. Let me talk about that for just a moment. 
everywhere we see images of the church and of the Bible throughout the scriptures, we also see food. And there's a reason for that. God made us with taste buds. She's impressed with what there is to eat on the table. And when God had his people, well, Solomon's keeping all the feasts like he should. And when God directs the church to have actual koinonia feasting and food together, then when our grandparents were doing potlucks every other Sunday, they were doing it for a reason. And eating together was just part of this. She was impressed with the seating. Why would, she, why would the seating be an image of this? The seating meant how you choose to arrange people in your throne room. Well, how did God direct us to seat people? There's actual instruction in the New Testament about how to seat people in a church. Do you remember this? Right? For, for Romans 2.11, there's no partiality with God, but there's also the idea that when someone comes in that's wealthy or rich, you shouldn't seat them at a higher seat than if somebody comes in with poverty. In other words, there's no partiality in the church. People don't get rank based on how much wealth they have. So she's impressed with the seating. Also, Romans 12.10, be kindly and affectionate to, to one another in brotherly love, in honor, giving preference to nobody, and not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, and serving the Lord. The only thing we do is we're active in serving the Lord, but we don't give preference to people. So the Queen of Sheba is looking at Solomon's household going, I'm really impressed with the seating arrangements. She's impressed with the service. So let each one give as one purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or out of necessity, because God loves a cheerful giver, 2 Corinthians 9, 7. When people see the church, they should be impressed with how we serve in the church. Look at that. You got your pastors cleaning up dishes. You got people that are first timers here getting all, they're getting treated like kings and queens and all the old timers here are doing all the work. That's just awesome. Verse seven clarifies that she sees happiness in service. She's seeing that this guy's got a bunch of people serving in the throne room and they're actually happy to be there. It's kind of easy to serve when you have a good king. And when you have a wise king, it's really easy to serve. She's impressed with their apparel. <laughs> there are actually passages in the New Testament that spend considerable time on how we should dress when we go to church. That part of how we come with modesty and simple clothing, not dressing up to show off or show off our wealth. Um, we have an Old Testament example with Solomon's dad, David, wearing a tunic when he went to worship. And she's impressed that these people, these Israelites, they don't seem to show favor in their seating, but they also seem to wear this wonderful apparel. The implication in Chronicles is that their apparel is really nice. These servants actually dressed pretty well for servants. And you think in Africa, we know historically servants would generally not be given anything fancy. They didn't spend any money or energy on their servants. But Solomon's servants have homes to live in. They have families to take care of. There's a different tone in Israel that she's noticing. The church takes care of each other. And we, you know, there's things like food shelves and clothing drives that churches do because we take care of each other. And people are, I think one of the things people see when they look at the kingdom of God is they, they're impressed by those things, the service, the apparel. Then there's this other one here, his entryway. She's impressed with his entryway. Um, the entryway, if you're looking at the church, oddly enough, we actually have passages on that. We have passages on the door of the church. And Jesus said himself, John 10, 9, he says, I'm the door. If anyone enters by me, he'll be saved and will go in and out and find his pasture. Interesting passage. But when you look at that with how that matches with the Old Testament image of Solomon, it's a pretty important passage because it fulfills this kind of odd list of things that Sheba's impressed with. 
And each of those things is spoken to in the New Testament. So does the church have a door? Yeah, Jesus says he's the door. Nice image of the ark too, but in this case, this leaves her with no more spirit in her. Now, that doesn't mean she's depressed, you know, like, oh, now I'm bummed out. Um, this country's so great, my country's not. I think the queen knew that she'd come there with so much she wanted to learn that she simply is exhausted her, she's learned everything she can learn. And she's seen something, and maybe the spirit left her because she started to see that a happy nation was about more than just wealth, that it just wasn't about money, that there's something about Solomon's kingdom where there's a joy to it. There's a willingness to it and a cheerfulness to it. It's not just something you do every week because you have to. It's something you do every week because you get to. And this was the humanity that was maintained in Israel, service with joy, wealth without pride, that this marked Solomon's kingdom as something special on the planet Earth. It was a light to the world and to the nations. The word spirit there is ruah. It means a breath or a wind. So likely this would be better interpreted to say she was breathless. You know, her, her, uh, what she saw in Solomon took her breath away would be a perfectly okay to way to interpret this Hebrew, is to not do it in terms of her, her spiritual self, but that she literally was breathless. This was just, it just amazed her. You know, it's, it's interesting, and I, I want to make this point because I, I think the Lord sometimes gives us experiences during the week before we study the Word that we can share. One of the things that's, that has struck me at the State Fair is that I'd say half of the Christian groups that do music at Crossroads Chapel mix in secular music with what they're doing. And it's not something where I'm going to get in their face or get mean about it, but I'm kind of sad about that because what it says is you don't think you're going to attract people to God's kingdom unless you do things of the world and that you have to connect with people with songs they recognize in order to convince them to take a look at the church. And I think when people do that, it's because they have a church that has no life. And there's nothing there. They don't see that what they have to offer is superior to what the world has to offer. And it's an interesting thing to me. But when we try to sell to the world that we can be worldly like them, then we're minimizing what God wants us to really be offering and putting on the hill. But when we go to the world and laugh at what they have or are not impressed with what they have and we know what we have in the church, I think that we have a lot better witness to people like the Queen of Sheba that she's coming to see what's going on over here because she's heard good things and what she sees takes her breath away. And I got to tell you, like for me and my wife talked about this a lot, when I saw a church that was healthy, it took my breath away. And I instantly realized that's what I want. I want family. I want fellowship. I want food, prayer. I don't want cliques. I don't want this family's better than that family, a church with no partiality. Those things have to exist in a healthy church. And welcome has to happen. Service has to be with cheer, not because you've been doing it for 20 years and you're the only person that could possibly minister in that area, but you're doing it because you love it. And if the joy goes away, you let somebody else step in that has joy in that area. And churches that are healthy continue to do that to the point where I was so breathless that here we are studying the Bible in my family because this is what our family started to do. And as we join together every week and study the Word, I think if people saw what we were doing, for a lot of them, it would leave them breathless. They would say, wow, that's just what I need. Dan, you've expressed the same sentiment. You're like, this is what I need. This is what this should look like. And the Queen of Sheba has that reaction to what Solomon's doing in his kingdom. It looks right. His personal life is already falling apart. 
But his civic life and his wisdom as a king is he's building this kingdom that's actually done the right way. And it has the right joy to it. And then she said to the king, verse 5, It was a true report which I heard in my own land about your words and your wisdom. Man, I heard things about you and it was right. However, I didn't believe their words until I came and saw it with my own eyes. And indeed, the half of the greatness of your wisdom was not told to me. You exceed the fame of which I heard. Like, hear that in lies of the church, too. Man, I heard things about healthy churches. I just didn't believe they existed. I've seen so many bad ones. I've seen it done the wrong way so many times. But once you see it, it's so much better than anything you expect. And I'm not claiming we're perfect as a group by any means. But I am claiming that I love what we have. I love the fellowship we have. It's sweet. It's, it's real. There's no posturing. There's no positioning. Um, we have a joyfulness of service that's just outstanding. And I love sharing it with people outside of our body. They still can't believe we all went to Glacier together. Like, that blows people away. It leaves them breathless. What do you mean you actually hang out with people from your church? And well, yeah, what, what, what do you think we do? And when people see it, they're like, yeah, it wasn't even half what you explained. It was way better than what you explained. But notice here that she had to come see it for herself. There was no other way to make that happen. She had to come see it. So verse 7, happy are your men and happy are the, these, your servants who stand continually before you and hear your wisdom. And they, this is a blessing, not a curse. To serve a good king, man, it's easy to serve a wise Lord. It is easy to serve Jesus Christ. And when we see that the servants aren't just working a job, verse 7 tells us the whole story. She saw all this gold and opulence and wealth, but what she's impressed with is verse 7. you got servants that actually like doing their jobs. You have people that actually fight over who gets to pick up the most dishes. What kind of church is this? You know, and you got people like seeing who can get to sweeping up the floor first. And that kind of service is a ministry that people see when they come and visit. Verse 8, Blessed be the Lord your God who delighted in you, setting you on his throne to be king for the Lord your God, because your God has loved Israel to establish them forever. Therefore he made you king over them to do justice and righteousness. This fulfills Deuteronomy 28. People all over the world are going to see and recognize what that looks like. She sees it. The world sees it. There's a hope of Christ in the church that's the exact same. It also fulfills God's promise that the world would see this blessing so abundant that the only explanation is the Lord your God. Sadly, she says the Lord your God. She doesn't say the Lord our God. So there's no indication here that the Queen of Sheba is saved, quote unquote, or that she converts but she recognizes that she is, she's only one word away, you guys. She recognizes it. She sees it. She knows there's something special there. Um, still, she believes in God, but she's not necessarily following God. So seeing that Solomon's been put on a throne, that his actions um, were being overshadowed by an almighty God is the only explanation she can come up with. And frankly, I, I think that's true of the church, too, if you're looking at this as a model of that situation. Uh, the only real explanation for how the church operates is, is an almighty God is guiding normal people to do amazing things for 2,000 years. And she gave the king 120 talents of gold, spices in great abundance, and precious stones. There were never, and there were never, there never were any spices such as those the Queen of Sheba gave to King Solomon. Also the servants of Hiram and the servants of Solomon who brought gold from Ophir, brought algum wood and precious stones. And the king made walkways of the algum wood for the house of the Lord and for the king's house 
and the harps and stringed instruments for singers. I'll stop there for a second. The algum wood is a clue that Ophir might be in India. Now, Ophir wood could have been shipped to Arabia or Africa, or they could have been growing groves in those places. Um, but it is native, or uh, the, ex the, the thought is that that's how far the shipping went under Solomon's reign. There were none such as these before the land of Judah. Now King Solomon gave the Queen of Sheba all she desired, whatever she asked, much more than she had brought to the king. So she turned and went to her own country, she and her servants. So she takes off. Solomon takes these gifts and gives them back. So adding these things in. Some use this as a principle. Um, the fact that these things get added to the kingdom, that God brings this much wealth and opulence to Solomon, some people see that as when God loves you, he'll give you lots of gold. Um, I think that there's much more to this. And, and if you look at the full counsel of God, that's not the only thing there. But we can see that by taking this wood and using it, I think it's interesting. Um, in verse 11, when he makes walkways with this algamon, he's actually taking something from a non-believing Gentile and he's putting it to use for God's service. And I think that's an interesting principle that the church over the years has adopted things that the world has created to make the church a more welcoming place. And we can often put things from the world to use in God's service. Now, the Amish might not agree with this, right? But most modern churches today put cushions on their chairs. That's a nice invention that makes long Bible studies easier. Air conditioning, paint, sound systems, lighting, etc., etc. You could say these are luxuries of the world and we should not touch any of these things or like Solomon you can say actually we think we can put those things to work for the king's service those can be a real blessing to people coming to serve the Lord Jesus uses this story about Sheba as a warning I would not be doing my job if I didn't remind us of this Matthew 12 if you want to glance at it verse 42 says the queen of the south shall rise up in judgment with this generation now when he says that that's a strong implication that this Sheba queen actually came to following Yahweh. Because at the end of days, in Matthew, she's going to rise up and be one of the people that testifies against our generation. Because, and she shall condemn it, for she came from the uttermost parts of the earth, 1,500 miles, to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, greater than Solomon is here. We've heard from Jesus. So when Jesus uses Solomon to compare himself, that's why I'm making all these comparisons to the church. Because the Bible tells us, Jesus tells us to make that comparison. So in that sense, she comes all the way up to hear the wisdom of Solomon, yet in our generation we have all the wisdom of Jesus in the gospel, in four different gospels, and we have people that won't even read it. So when they stand before the judgment seat, they'll say, well, I'm a pretty good person. And you'll say, well, the, and the Queen of Sheba will speak up and say, pretty good person didn't even read the gospels. You didn't even seek wisdom in your life. So why does this person get to go anywhere and I have to be judged for my lack of wisdom? Jesus said she'll be one of the people that rise up in judgment against this generation. And part of that is people aren't seeking the word of God. They're not seeking Jesus. And not seeking Jesus alone condemns, according to Jesus, this generation. And I think we live in that generation. We've had the mass majority of people aren't even seeking right now. That's the generation we live in. And that alone makes them guilty uh, before you even get to the Ten Commandments. You know, We also can note in this line, none of this um, is something that, that filled her image of what was there. So it was all she desired, all the fancy trimmings, 
Um, Solomon gave her everything she desired, verse 12, um, and whatever she asked, and then much more that she had brought to a king, yet she still turns away. You know, so if she's there to judge in the end, she maybe had a change of heart later, but at this part, she's a seeker, right? And we say there's people that are seekers, and, and as far as gifts are open and asking recognition, Solomon the son, through the kingdom, blesses her with everything. And think of that when it comes to the church with people that are seekers. How do you be seeker-friendly? Bless them. Serve them. Be good hosts when they show up. Make sure they get extras. Make sure they go home with food. Make sure if they have needs, we try to meet them. And anything that they need, we try to fulfill that. And so as a church, we just give and give and bless a lot like Solomon did. So when they walk away, they walk away just thinking about it. What just happened there? So she's given so much more but we don't see that she repents, but we do see that there's a regard and a respect for Solomon and Solomon's kingdom. And the same is true with the church. You might get people that come and visit a church and they don't repent and they don't keep coming back, but they have a regard and respect that they didn't have before for what you're doing when it comes to your church life. And they're like, okay, I think I get what you're doing. So she has an excuse. I think Sheba has a great excuse. This is why she can condemn us. Solomon wasn't Jesus. So she has a pretty good excuse. Like she isn't dealing with the teachings of Jesus. He, she's just dealing with a shadow of, or at best, a typology of the real thing. Solomon was flawed. We just saw in the last chapter. Uh, we don't have that excuse. Jesus wasn't flawed. He didn't have those failings that you could justify not following. Um, and if the church, church represents and presents as we're told, we have, really have no excuses left. And we should give people no excuses. We shouldn't give them reason to disrespect or disregard Jesus as a church. So she leaves with much more than she had brought. I just like this image too. She goes with more than she brought to the table. And just that abundant generosity is wonderful. The, the writer, of course, is promoting a return to Israel and makes the case that it's kind of a financially good thing too. In other words, think about what the writer is saying to the Babylonians right now. When Solomon was king, this land produced a lot and was able to capture great wealth. If we go back and rebuild the temple, God could bless us the same way. So there is an argument being made by the chronicler that like, there's some gold to be had by rebuilding this temple and doing it the right way. The weight of gold that came to Solomon yearly was 666 talents of gold. Yes, we'll come back to that number. Besides what the traveling merchants and the traders brought, and all the kings of Arabia and the governors of the country brought gold and silver to Solomon. Um, and King Solomon made 200 large shields of hammered gold, 600 sh shekels of hammered gold went into each shield, and he made 3,000 shields of hammered gold, 300 shekels of gold went into each shield, and the king put them in the house of the forest of Lebanon. That's a building, decorative shields everywhere. Uh, let's point out here that we just saw the word Arabia in verse uh, 14. And we saw Ophir before. So for those that theorize that Ophir might be in Arabia, it seems like the writers of Chronicles know the difference between Ophir and Arabia. So I would personally eliminate Arabia from one of the possible sites of Ophir. But I don't know, I'm not an archaeologist. So biblical clues wise, I'd start looking in Africa and India for that city. As with construction, chariots and wives, we also see Solomon accumulating wealth. So now we're back to bad things. Deuteronomy 17, 17, he should not multiply silver or gold for himself. Verses 13 through 16 strongly imply that he multiplied gold and silver unto himself. And he had so much of it, he started building decorations out of it. I don't have enough money to make money things for my wall. 
I still use wood um, because we're not that wealthy around here, but he was. So what do I do with all this money? I start making decorative shields. They're not useful for battle. They're too heavy and they're too soft. So gold for shields is completely decorative, not practical in any way. Every talent of this money could have built a business, could have provided for a widow, could have helped people in his kingdom. They could have put homeless people into homes. So I do see an image here where when we look at the opulence of Solomon in these verses, this is after the blessing that Sheba saw. This is on top of that. So I do think there's a point where the church can, yes, incorporate things from the world to make a better experience for the temple, for teaching of God's word. But there's also a point of opulence that the church can be drawn into too. We have way more than what they need and they're not kicking it back to the needs of the people. And Solomon does some of that. He accumulates to himself. Uh, verse 13 has the number 666 talents. You may have heard the number 666 before. Um, there are, there's another place in the Bible where that number comes up. In fact, there's only one other place in the Bible where that comes up. But let me give you some similar ones. Um, this becomes a number of notoriety. In verse 14, you're given that number in verse 13, but notice in 14 there's additional sources of money. So the writer's purposely putting in 666 here. Because the number is, if you add verse 14, besides the traveling merchants, the trade, there's a it's in addition to 666. So they're picking this number on purpose because it's, it's less those things in verse 14. While they were in Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold. Do you remember this story? That image was 60 feet high and 6 feet wide. Likely 6 feet, de six feet deep. So there is a fresh image that the Israelites had as they fought that battle over that stupid statue that also had a number very similar to this associated with it. Here's another reason for 666. Writers don't know that this number is going to get used in Revelation by John. That hasn't happened yet. So all they know about this number would be associated with that Nebuchadnezzar statue. It's still a connotation because of this. In the Hebrew, the word six is the number of mankind. It's an incomplete number. Mankind is, is been made in such a way, but without God, we are incomplete. The number seven is divine perfection or completeness. So anything that has those sixes included in the number are generally about human life, human intention, human desire, incomplete and, and, and kind of an irrelevant thing. And so you could argue, well, it is incomplete. 13 is a number, but then 14 completes it. No, 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 no. I think the writer is saying that all this wealth was basically human desire adding up. And, it, and, it, and not only that, but it was six, six, six. It's just human desire upon human desire. Gathering wealth, stocking it up, putting your trust in that wealth, that's the number of man. That's what men do. And women too. You're not off the hook with that. Revelation 13, 18. Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding. Who has wisdom in the Old Testament? Oh, it's Solomon. And John says in Revelation, here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast. For it's the number of man. And his number is... 666. Highly connected to the verses we just read. In fact, I think John's inspired by these verses. It's a really easy trap to fall into to think money is your security. And this particular number of 666 is like making a billion dollars a year. So Solomon is by far the richest human being to walk the earth at this point. Extreme gross money and income. Everybody has a price for evil. And the wisest person in the world, his price was 666. That's the money that got him to sin and buy into and sell out to 
trusting in money for his safety and security. You see how evil that is? How wrong that is? Also, I think, if you're looking at that comparison in any kind of way, like, what does that tell us about the Revelation chapter? I know we're going to get to Revelation eventually, but just real quickly, the number 666 is a number of Solomon trading off God's wisdom for human money and wealth and thinking that's a good trade. And there's a spiritual vacancy to this number that biblically is going to connect with Revelation pretty well. If Solomon's an image of Christ in some regards, he's also an image of the beast in other regards. And the beast is the temptation of money, the temptation of this world to be your security and your safety. And you look at how we're turning today, and this is where we're all getting into prophecy stuff right now. Like we have a world and the kingdoms of this world that are saying, here's where your safety is. It's in our leadership. It's in the money we can set up. It's in the financial systems that we control. And that lie is the lie of humanity that goes all the way back to Solomon. You think you're making so much money that you're good as a kingdom? That kingdom ended up in Babylon. It provided no security at the end. All those golden shields get, notably get hauled off to Babylon and melted down and used to make that statue that was 60 feet high, 6 feet wide. Right? You see the connections here and what this looks like. So, again, the writers of Chronicle don't even know how this number is going to play out later, but when we read this in Revelation, we should go back to these verses and understand exactly what the sin was that that number is associated with. And it's the sin in trusting in man. So Solomon equals this image. He's got God's plan for 20 years with the temple, perfect, completed to, to a T exactly what he should do. But the latter part of his life, He's conducting and carrying out man's plan, which is a demonic plan to build your own faith and trust in yourself. Assuming the readers know Deuteronomy, this gives the reader a warning. And they don't need the commentary. The warning is 300 shields of hammered gold, beautiful but useless. That's the warning. And you can have a great place, a great fancy thing. You can have a brand new Ford Explorer, but that is not where you put your faith and your trust. It's just stuff. It's beautiful, but useless in a spiritual sense. It will not get you to heaven. Or as we used to sing, you can't get to heaven with a nickel in your jeans because God don't have no slot machines, right? It's just money. doesn't matter. So you get a full list of wealth showing God's provision, but you also get this full list of extravagance showing Solomon's heart is in the wrong place. Moreover, verse 17, we're going to add to this. The king made a great throne of ivory, beautiful but useless. He overlaid it with pure gold. The throne had six steps. See the number there again? A footstool of gold, which were fastened to the throne. There were armrests on either side of the place of the seat, and two lions stood beside the armrests. Twelve lions stood there, one on each side of the six steps. Nothing like this had been made for any other kingdom. It was without compare. Deuteronomy 28 says that's going to happen. All of Solomon's drinking vessels were gold, and all the vessels of the house of the forest of Lebanon were pure gold. You know, if you have trouble like with missing silverware or dinner plates after, a, after you've hosted a bunch of people, like imagine having gold stuff and people just kind of pocketing that and going home with it. Like it'd be really hard to maintain your dinner sets. Not one was silver, for this was accounted as nothing in the days of Solomon. For the king's ships went to Tarshish with his servants of Hiram. Once every three years, the merchant ships came, bringing gold, silver, ivory, 
apes and monkeys. Now, you are not rich until you have a monkey. That is the, I think it's funny that that's at the top of the list. Used to be a sign that had a line saying, haven't you always wanted a monkey? Right? And this is just, it's totally useless and not even beautiful. Like, it, you, first you start with gold shields, and now you're just, well, I got a monkey. And the odd thing is, in the 1980s, we had a singer, a musician, Michael Jackson, got just, he had this album that made him so much money. The news was filled with these stories of just how much stuff he had. You know one of the things he bought at the height of his wealth? He bought a monkey. That's an odd thing to do as a human being. So Solomon didn't pursue money initially when God asked him about it. God said, I'm going to give you so much money, you're not going to know what to do with it. So at the end of the day, when you have so much money, you don't know what to do with it, you buy monkeys. Truly, if monkeys are an import, Solomon has been blessed beyond any comparison in the world to date. And verse 22 starts with the word so. Because of all this, so King Solomon surpassed all the kings of the earth in riches and wisdom and all the kings of the earth sought the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom. How do I lead a country like you lead a country? Which God had put in his heart. God gave him this wisdom to run a nation this successfully. Each man brought his present articles of silver and gold, garments, armor, spices, horses, mules, at a set rate year by year. This is, becomes this era, this golden era of Israel, literally golden filled. And we have this just opulence here. Again, when we look to Jesus, we're looking at how to run a better kingdom, how to run a better life. The world should be going to church saying, how do you do like disaster relief? How do you feed and educate kids? How do you provide for your widows? The problem is you have churches that don't think they need to be doing those things anymore. So those things get disregarded and we trust the government to do food shelves and the government to provide for people and welfare to take care of folks because the church has just offloaded that. What would it look like if the church once again rose up to do exactly those things for the people? To where the government was going, how do you do this so efficiently? How do you do this so well? Because we're following the Lord. Verse 25, Solomon had 4,000 stalls and horses and chariots, 12,000 horsemen who he stationed in the chariot cities with the king at the Jerusalem. So Solomon built cities that were just for the horses and chariots. I think this was one of his intellectual justifications. I'm not keeping horses and chariots because I'm keeping them out at these other cities, but I'm not keeping them at Jerusalem. So he's justified defying the law in that. The other thing is the famed stables of Solomon have been dug up. They've been found. If you've watched the Lord of the Rings, for a nightly Lord of the Rings reference, the riders of Rohan had these stables that were ornately decorated, and it's like the horses lived like kings. The stables of Solomon looked a lot like that. The horses lived like kings. And the, fame, the, the part of the legend of Solomon were these massive cities built entirely for horses and, care, and for the care of horses. So massive construction projects. Verse 26, so he reigned over all the kings from the river to the land of the Philistines. Uh, that would be the Fertile Crescent. As far as the border of Egypt, that would be all through Gaza, all the way down to the Nile. King made silver as common in Jerusalem as stones. He made cedar trees as abundant as the sycamores, which are in the lowland. And they brought horses to Solomon from Egypt, from all lands. Again, we get this mix. The opulence of Israel, but then these things that shouldn't be there. 
And it's all kind of mixed together with Solomon. Praise God with Jesus, they're not mixed together. Jesus didn't fall into these temptations. And he didn't mix these things together. In, in Ecclesiastes, I want to point out that Solomon himself writes that none of this wealth made him happy. In fact, the whole point of Ecclesiastes is how futile all this stuff is. So I think in his old age, Solomon reflected back on it with wisdom and saw that this was a waste and that he wasted his time. He wasted what God had given him. Yet it fulfills God's ability to shower material blessing on, on Israel because it serves the overall mission of the, the history of the world. This is a period that's important because God wants to show the world that he can bless even with Solomon, a failed servant. Imagine how much more Jesus has promised to bless us, how he's gone to prepare a place for us, how the streets of heaven are lined with gold, and he's preparing a place that's way better than this, and he hasn't fallen into sin like Solomon did. And his kingdom is going to go forever, much greater than Solomon's kingdom. So the Bible paints this picture of this opulent Jerusalem, opulent Israel, but it, it, it's pale in comparison to what it's a, what it's a typology of, heaven and the kingdom that Jesus prepares for us. So God fulfills the to show the world his ability to bless through Solomon. It detours Solomon's heart. He's frankly not able to handle it. And so we think of how Jesus blesses us and the fact that we have to kind of plod through life on this earth before we get to heaven. I think it's so that we're not tempted by it. That we'll get to heaven and it won't be the stuff that impresses us. It'll be the presence of God that impresses us. 1 Timothy 6.10, for, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Having money and don't having money messes us up. It's the number of man. It's 666. It's a messy thing. To have the money you need to survive and be content with that, I think is one of the greatest blessings of the kingdom of God. We don't live for money anymore. What a blessing. And we can be poor or rich in comparison to each other's incomes, but we live modestly and we use our resources to bless people in the kingdom of God. And when that's done right, it's not socialism, it's generosity that provides for the body of Christ. So the chronicler leaves these commentaries in other texts, but doesn't skip the point that there was both blessing and sin at the same time with Solomon's reign. And this is confounding for people that want to figure all this out. But the reality is it was both there with Solomon. So we can be tempted to dismiss Chronicles because it leaves out the detail in the commentary, or we can read Deuteronomy and know how to provide our own commentary on Chronicles. What he did here was sin. What God is doing is showing the world what blessing looks like, and they both have different things going on at the same time. I would also say this, just because Chronicles leaves out the commentary on sin, um, all books that have ever been written in the history of the world include certain things and exclude certain things. That's part of writing. You have to decide what your theme is and what your topic is. So I just don't, I don't, I've heard that critique. I don't really look at Chronicles and think it's less than because of what the writers were intending to do, which is why I keep reminding us of what these writers are trying to do. I think they're doing exactly what they're trying to do with their writing. Verse 29, now the rest of the acts of Solomon, first and last, are they not written in the book of Nathan the prophet, what? There's another book out there? The prophecy of Ahijah the Shilonite? Wait, that's two books that we don't have in the Bible? And in the visions of Edo the seer. That's a third book we do not have in the Bible that happened to exist when the chroniclers were writing. So next time they pull up the, uh, 
you know, they find some more scrolls in the Middle East, I'm looking for those books to pop up somewhere. I think it'd be cool. They're not in the Bible. God didn't sustain them. Um, these visions of Edo the seer concerning Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. Uh, the, I think these are books we can expect to read in the heavenly libraries for us geeks that love to read, but they're not books that were essential for what God needed to reveal to us. But they were a recording of just all the other stories of Solomon, what was going on. Verse 30 says, Solomon reigned in Jerusalem over all Israel for 40 years. Again, that number keeps popping up as a, a number of trial and testing. The ark was in the water for 40 years. Jesus was in the wilderness for 40 days. That number pops up often with a season of trial. Solomon, given everything a king could be given by God, is in a season of trial. And reading the book of Ecclesiastes tells you his perspective on that trial. And where he came out at the end of it was, serve the Lord God with your heart, mind, and soul. That's the sum total of mankind's wisdom. Then Solomon rested with his fathers. He was buried in the city of David, his father, and Rehoboam, his son, reigned in his place. This starts the rest of Chronicles, where we're going to go through all these kings, and if they did good or bad. For Chronicles, only one thing matters. Did they serve the Lord or didn't they? And was there blessing attached to those that served? And was there curses attached to those who didn't? So we have a great illustration of the idea that you can gain the whole world and you can lose your soul. Just like Matthew teaches, what does it profit a man if he gains the world but loses his soul? The Chronicler paints the pictures that these blessings were keeping a promise to David um, and an example to the world of what God does to keep his promises. Um, and then I want to point out one other thing. Verse 31 says Solomon rested. It doesn't say that he died. It says he rested. And I think this is interesting how the Bible has a, there is a biblical view of death. And sometimes the Bible says somebody died. And a lot of times with the Bible, especially with people that are godly and God loves them, it'll use a phrase like this, that he rested with his fathers. We're going to see a lot of that in Chronicles. And that's because the Jews had already developed a tradition and a religious belief based on the scriptures that you don't die when you're dead. Right? That you're only tasting death is a phrase we just covered in Luke this morning. Jesus uses this too. He comes up in Matthew 9, Mark 5, Luke 8, and he comes up to the little girl and they say she's dead. And he says, she's not dead, she's sleeping. sleeping. And God's view of what we think is the final thing of death is not the norm. Like normally humans think death is the end. And it's horrible and it's tragic. We should be avoided at all costs. God simply doesn't think that way about death. And biblically, we see death as a taste or a bit of sleep. Um, herein, this is the end of Solomon's reign. It is how they phrase this in Chronicles, that he goes, to, he sleeps with his fathers. Um, we know that, obviously, God's promised us more than death, that death is a transition to another existence. And that existence is one where we know each other's names, we are free from sin and the temptations of sin, and we can see God in his glory and live within his glory without this barrier between us. So there's something magnificent about that kingdom. I love that at the end of this chapter, I think we're going to end this image of God's kingdom as much here. We're going to go into a very human trajectory of Israel and Judah. Um, but we do get this glimpse of, of um, that death is not the end, even with Solomon. Like there's another story to be told. That There's another book we haven't read yet about what happens afterwards. So I, I love the hope that that ends with when we get here. So that's Second Chronicles 8 and 9. Next week, we'll come back to chapter 10. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we just love you. We love studying the word and seeing these 
ideas as you've planted them with the Israelites and with the Jews. We love seeing the narrative as it moves forward. And Lord, give us just eyes to see and ears to hear um, so that we can learn and apply this to our lives too. We can understand the church. We can understand this era and this age. And what you're building towards now and today is also for a heavenly kingdom where we walk and talk with you. We live in your glory. And uh, that is the end goal, Lord. And we still are just, this life is just a shadowy, we see through a glass dimly. Um, and we, we are peering and trying, Lord, because we want to see your face. And we want to be with you. Lord, we pray for your peace and your grace. We pray for release. And Lord, we pray for this world we live in. The wars and rumors of war, the plagues, the pestilence, the flooding, the earthquakes, uh, the things that are going on around this world, Lord, it just seems like they're, they're getting more and more frequent, more and more common. And Lord, we know that you have a plan and we trust ourselves to you. And we don't trust ourselves to money or resources or the, the blessings of this world and what this world has to offer. Lord, we trust the spiritual blessings that you've promised us and we pray that we can receive those blessings of peace and joy and hope and patience, long-suffering. Uh, Lord, that we, we bear witness that you build those things in our heart and we just glorify you in all of those things. So bless this time, bless this word as it goes into our hearts and give it room to grow. In Jesus' name. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.